You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Belaboured fans. This week, we have a special episode for you. Not only did we record live at last week's Labor Notes conference in Chicago, where we joined about 3,000 unionists from across the world to talk about organizing, politics, and solidarity, but also this is Belaboured's fifth birthday. We posted Belaboured episode one on April 12th, 2013, with an interview with Karen Lewis of the Chicago Teachers Union. And so it's appropriate that this was our first Belaboured live outside of New York City, held in Chicago, and it featured teachers from West Virginia and Wisconsin, as well as a campus worker from Tennessee. But before I let you get to the interview, I wanted to say some thank yous to Sarah Leonard, who put my weird idea for a labor podcast into motion, and to everyone at Descent for believing in us, to the Chicago Fight for 15 workers who lent us their song as our theme music, to Josh Idelson, my first co-host, and to Michelle Chen, who stepped in and has been with me for most of the last five years, the hardest working co-host anyone could have, and finally, to Natasha Lewis, whose voice you hear briefly in each episode, but who has edited every single podcast you have listened to since day one. Thanks to all of you listeners, too, for making Belabored an Institution. Now, on with the live show. Welcome to Belabored Live, everyone. And if folks want to move up, we're going to have a Q&A and be asking people to, you know, speak through the mic. So, you know, feel free to sit up if you feel like it. So we realized, Natasha and I were sitting there talking this week and realized this is going to be actually the fifth anniversary of our podcast. Um, And we, for me, Michelle joined us a little bit later, but um, still, five five years of this podcast and our first guest ever was Karen Lewis from the Chicago Teachers Union, so it is appropriate that we're doing this here in Chicago. Full circle, full circle. And that we have some teachers on our panel. So we are going to talk about the rapidly approaching future of organizing outside of labor law. And so we have some people on our session who can talk about that in various ways. And I think we're going to let them introduce themselves to all of you and to our podcast listeners for just a couple of minutes. And then we'll ask some questions. And then we will open it up and get some questions from you. And at that point, I think Natasha will have a microphone. And we will ask you to speak your question into it so you can be heard once again by all of our podcast listeners. And you're now co-producers of our next episode. Yes. So I am Sarah Jaffe. This is Michelle Chen. We also, before we get started, we're going to say thank you so much to Chris Brooks, who is hanging out in the back of this room, who helped us make this possible, lined up our amazing panelists. Made this entire conference what it is. Thank you to Chris and all of the Labor Note staff. Hi, everybody. Introductions first. Yes. Amy Mazielko. I'm a special education teacher from Milwaukee Public Schools. This is my 26th year. I am currently serving as the vice president of the Milwaukee Teachers Union. And we are uh, seven years post Act 10 and um, organizing with community parents, students, all lovers of public education in our city to make sure that our students get what they deserve, our public schools get resourced, and that educators get the respect that they need to do the work that they need to do with kids in classrooms. I'm Josh Schmeiser. I'm a member of United Campus Workers, which is a CWA affiliate. We organize uh, higher education workers, public higher education workers in the state of Tennessee. Um, we're currently at 19 campuses with about 1,800 members. We like a lot of public sector workers are 
and fueling the onslaught of neoliberalism, and that's mainly manifested itself as an effort by our governor to privatize the entirety of facilities um, in our state uh, state government. And so we've won recently a major victory uh, in preventing that in one of the university systems, and we're currently working to stop that in the other ones. My name is Angela Harris. I am a kindergarten teacher in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at Milwaukee Public Schools, a proud member of the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association. Current campaigns that we are fighting right now is time, health, and a raise. We want the district to take us seriously, consider us the professionals that we are, and respect our time and allow us to dictate how our time is used. At this point, I'm a new educator. This is my first year. I, there's no prospects of me getting a raise anytime in the near future. Um, so that's really important to me. And they're also trying to raise my health care insurance. So on top of not getting a raise, I'm expected to pay more for my health care as well. So um, we have a whole month of actions planned um, with teachers, community members, parents to kind of fight back against this. I'm Brandon Wolford, and I come from a small rural county in southern West Virginia. I am, <laughs> I am a special education teacher at Lenore K-8 School in Mingo County. I'm also the president of the Mingo County Education Association, which is also part of the NEA. Um, we are actually celebrating a victory. We just got the largest raise that we had received in 28 years. We have successfully abolished charter schools. We secured our seniority and we have also made a ensured that a panel of people were put together, a task force, in order to keep our insurance from raising our premiums, so on and so forth. Uh, that isn't set in stone yet, but the governor has issued an executive order due to our strike efforts, and basically we're celebrating, but we want them to know that we're not finished. We're coming back on the county level now. We have lay dormant for way far too long. County level, state level, we got them on the state level, now we're coming to you on the county level. We want our voices to be heard. Next legislative session, we're gonna be right there and we're gonna be asking for even more. Thank you. All right, thank you for the great introductions um, and for keeping it brief. Thank you, I appreciate that. How do we organize for worker empowerment outside of formal union structures? That's the overarching theme here. And I was wondering if you had any examples of how you guys have, in the absence of a lot of the formal legal channels that um, you know, educators and, and you know, public sector workers and others can often go through, um, how have you built sort of community um, alliances from the ground up? What are some of the other groups and allies that you've found, perhaps in politics itself or outside of politics, that have helped you mobilize as well as organize for the long term? Okay. 
Um, first of all, we had a senator, Mr. Richard Ojeda, who came and supported us 100%. He actually got on the Senate floor and he said, if you don't give these people the respect, the rights, and the wages they deserve, face it, ladies and gentlemen, the S word is coming. You know, strike is taboo there. So he wanted to just oh, remind happens. everyone that it was going to happen. So he, he actually started this. He, he got this movement going. We have a lot of respect for Senator Ojeda. So what I would suggest that most of you do is go to your senators, go to your representatives in our state. It's called House of Delegates. Get your people involved. Have them on board to where the um, employees are not afraid to step out. If they have the public support of their elected officials, they will be more willing to step out and strike, work stoppage, what, it, what be it. But um, another thing that we did as far as community involvement was we printed flyers. We let our people know what it was they were trying to do to us. We kept them well informed. Um, we were approximately an hour and 20 minutes from the Capitol, so not everyone could go. So what we did was we had our people to have two to three different locations, and we exchanged uh, every other day or so. At one point, we would have uh, people rallying at the courthouse because we knew not everyone was able to travel to the Capitol. Some had um, sick illnesses in their family. Others had several children. So those people remained on post at either their local school, work site, or at the courthouse. Then we had people who would alternate between going to the courthouse, the school, or the capital. We actually had people going in all directions, but that is what you have to do to build community support. You have to let them know what you're fighting about, and you also have to let them know why that it is important. If they don't understand, they cannot support you. That is your main thing, is to get the word out there in order to have the public support that you need in order to proceed. I just want to touch on that point as well. Um, our union does a great job, I think, of reaching out to the community members whenever we have an issue. We will have phone banking parties at our union office where we have lists printed out of all of the community members who've ever supported us, who've ever shown up at school board meetings, um, who ever you know, have volunteered at schools, different things like that. And we will just call them all and we'll let them know this is what we're working on, this is what we need you to do. We need you to contact school board members, we need you to contact you know, local uh, legislators, those different kinds of things. Yeah, I think just piggybacking on that, the institutions, uh, right, like K through 12 and higher education are incredibly impactful on communities and they touch a lot of people in a lot of ways. Um, on a college campus that includes lots of students, um, but it also includes just many people who know people who work on campus. 
Um, and especially in uh, places where the institution is much more economically important, it draws in people from other counties who therefore are represented by different uh, representatives and senators, and so it's you're just much more able if you can understand that and utilize those connections to really push, push politically and also push in the community because you touch so many people in so many different communities if you only realize that. And I can just say that in Milwaukee, uh, we've worked very closely with uh, community coalition schools and communities united. The Really, the, the seeds of that coalition uh, were sown when a Democratic mayor tried to take over Milwaukee Public Schools. Um, and there was uh, a strong alliance between NAACP and educators in our city to make sure that that didn't happen. Um, but then, I think, you know, the real birth of Schools and Communities United, which is 20 organizations, so these are labor organizations, faith organizations, students, um, educators, different community folks, ACLU, Voces de la Frontera, Opt Out Milwaukee. And, you know, let me just say that, you know, some of our partners, a lot of our partners are people who just decided they don't like business as usual. So our women-informed partners are some of our strongest allies, Marva and Gail, who... Uh, they don't have a fancy organization. They don't have a 501c3. They're just folks in the, in the community who have decided that they want resource public schools for our kids. Our opt-out Milwaukee parents have been a huge part of the coalition. But we meet every other week at a table. And the, the one, we have many issues that we care about, but the one binding issue that never goes away is that we are going to unapologetically fight for public schools because they're the only schools that welcome and serve every, every child. Those are the only schools that have the legal responsibility and the capacity, and it's our responsibility to take care of them. And so I'll just say that a coalition is essential, um, but a coalition is messy sometimes. So I just want you to know that we don't have um, perfect harmony at all times at the coalition, and that's not necessary. You don't have to have perfect harmony all the time. There should be discussion. There's going to be disagreement. And Bob Peterson always says, if that isn't present in your coalition circle, your circle isn't big enough. You don't have all the voices there. So we are, we, we are a work in progress. It is imperfect. We have hard discussions sometimes. Uh, when the state imposed legislation to take over our school district, that coalition never quit, but there were a couple partners on that coalition who wanted, who wanted to stand down. They thought the coalition was going too hard. And that was fine, but everybody else had to keep going. And that coalition, our Schools and Communities United folks, never gave up and were instrumental in defeating a state legislative takeover. Our union could not do that alone. So the labor movement exists right now under the shadow of the Janus case. And we wanted to pull together a panel of people who are already organizing in worse than Janus conditions. So we should say that here, right? Everybody on this panel is not only in right to work, y'all are in much worse than right to work. And so in doing that, you've all been successful. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about 
what specifically unions can learn from having to organize in conditions that are beyond right to work? So I often uh, talk about our union as being like uh, Wiley Coyote in the Looney Tunes, where uh, as long as he's not looking down, he doesn't fall. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that our, our union and all the folks on this panel uh, are people who are persisting and looking forward. And so like, w when you're persisting and looking forward, if you think about the community that you're in, if you think about the connections that you have, if you talk and articulate about the public good that you provide. I, I mean, I carry mail on campus, so I'm, I'm not as impressive as these teachers, but right, I provide a public good, and everybody in our union does. And when you communicate that to the students who receive those goods, the parents who send their kids there, who entrust their kids to go to our campus and to these schools, I think that's where you can really find that you have more power than you think you do, even if you are, like us, unable to bargain at all. Um, and when you utilize that power to push politically, because we elect our bosses and we tell them that, we elected you and we can unelect you, I, you know, I think that's, that's where the power comes from, is, is utilizing community and, and really uh, being willing to, to wield it, to wield it strategically. So I am actually a post-acting educator, so I'm not really familiar with mm -hmm. all of the things that happened prior to that. Um, so really, when I'm talking to uh, non-members or even members in our organization, I'm really talking about the things, the work that we're doing now, mm -hmm. the experiences that we are having now. Because we, like you said, we can't go backwards. Uh, we can only move forward, right? So um, those are the things that I'm really, I, I focus on when I'm talking to people. And then also, just getting them to realize that the power is in the members, the number of members that we have, um, that we can get signed up and on board with us. The strong, we're stronger together than we could ever be apart. So for me, it's important for people to understand that the power is within us and we're not necessarily looking to our union to save it and fix everything for us. We're actually going to be responsible and do it ourselves. I agree. It is the same way in West Virginia. We had some problems at the beginning with um, people saying, you know, it's, it's too early to go out. The legislative session is three weeks away before it, the, the end date actually is three weeks away they will starve us out people were afraid so they were establishing a fear but I, at the same time we told them you know if we can get all 55 counties aboard here we can just shut the state down and there's there's nothing they can do about it and that is exactly what we did we shut all 55 counties down we were on their doorstep we were chanting um, various things like um, not one, not two, not three, not four, 55 is at your door. Um, meaning we didn't want the 1% raise, the 2% raise, the 3% raise, or the 4% raise, but we wanted the five. And that is exactly what we got. I can also just say that, you know, after Act 10, uh, I get, our members get to go and bargain one thing, and that's cost of living. Can you just explain what Act 10 is? Yeah, so Act 10 is Scott Walker union busting legislation that came to Wisconsin that took collective bargaining away from us, that took arbitration away from us, that makes us do a recertification vote every single year just to survive as a union. 
Every year, every November, for 21 days, every member and non-member. And if you don't vote, it counts as a no. So I'm just going to, Wisconsin State Union, 98,000 members before Act 10, now we got 29,000. So that shit works. So we get to bargain one thing, that's cost of living. I want you to know cost of living was 0.12%. A couple years ago, it was 0.3%, a year before. So if we ever, ever bought into the idea that because we get to bargain one thing, nope, we're going to get everything. I don't know if anyone was in the room yesterday when Angela Harris said she's coming for everything Scott Walker took. Everything, y'all. I would like to add to what she is saying because when this started, it was basically about our insurance alone. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. They were trying to increase our premiums. They were trying to make us wear Fitbits. Um, if we didn't get so many steps per day, we, our um, premiums were going to increase $25 per month. So that is really what got the ball rolling. But after everyone became so enraged about what was going on, then we said, now we've got everyone riled up we're going for a raise. We're going to make sure they don't bother our seniority. We're going to make sure they abolish anything that has to do with charter schools and privatizing public education. So if you can find a really good point to get them started on and you have the solidarity, then you can go for everything. And can I, can I just say this also, our union, overwhelmingly voted to recertify this year. What was the percentage, Amy? Yeah, so Angela, thank you for raising that. Um, we, and this is a real thing, people get weary, people get fatigued. I get weary, I get fatigued. And so the, the concern has been year after year after year after year, are people gonna stop paying attention to this? Are they gonna, are they gonna lose the urgency of how important it is? and we turned in our highest recertification vote ever this last November. And I'll just, I'll just end by saying one thing, it is all about power, and it is all about deciding that you still have it, and that if you don't have enough of it, you can win more of it. But people, you know, for Angela and I, we have no choice we have no choice but to fight. It's the only choice they gave us. Because if we don't fight with our students and our families, no one's doing that. We have no choice. It's the only path we're walking. And we sit down at the table with administration lots of times and settle lots of things. But if they don't want to settle things nicely at the table and do right by our students and do right by the people who teach them, we will fight you every time. And we win more than we lose. We have to. These are our students. That's all, it's our only choice. 
And you guys, the point of Janice and Act 10 and the things that Governor Scott Walker and other governors like him are trying to do is to break unions down, to make us afraid. We can't let them do that because then they win. So when I said yesterday, I'm coming for everything Scott Walker took, I went on Twitter and I added him because I want him to know. <laughs> Speaking of the attempts to break the unions up, I know some of you may have been here last night, but after we decided to, t to start our work stoppage and we got in Charleston, we're there maybe a week, week and a half, and they propose a bill. And the bill is to require everyone who is a union member to reauthorize their dues to be removed from their paycheck every single year. So they were trying to break our unions up then. And that was just simple retaliation at its finest. And um, we ended up telling them, you know, before we'll settle, before we'll negotiate, that has to be brought off the table too because this insurance that you're proposing that you're going to raise, the retirement that's coming out, you're not making us reauthorized to allow you to take that out every year, so why should we have to on the union dues? We signed a paper, we can drop that at any time that we want, so why do we have to go through you? Why do we have to make it something that is a state law? It is our choice, it is our money, we see our paychecks every single time we are paid, we know when it's coming out, and we have the right to stop it, and it's not up to you to make us reauthorize our deductions. When we were originally trying to put this panel together, we had uh, sort of cast a wide net in terms of sectors or topics that we wanted to look at, but again and again, we kept returning to education. I don't think that's coincidental, and it's a reflection um, of, you know, the, the activism that, that has surged um, so far this year, but you know that is also not without reason. So I guess if you could talk about why education is such a galvanizing issue when perhaps other labor issues are not, or it mobilizes people in the community and it touches them in a way that they would be more open to labor struggles than they ordinarily might on other issues, politically speaking. Um, you know, what makes education special and, and how is that emblematic of wider trends in the workforce? Well, I think education is special, number one, because it affects all of us, right? Um, our district is predominantly black and brown. Um, when we think about black and brown children, they already are coming into buildings um, under a deficit. So it's our job to pay that deficit back. I think everybody realizes that. Parents realize that, community members realize that. The better we can educate our children, the better our nation will become. So I think that that's why it's such an easy issue for people to get behind. And then, right, we can all think back to a teacher who somehow touched our lives or impacted us in some type of way. So that's another thing that's like, that gets people involved and gets people to want to get behind us because, because of that. There are people who come who have no children, 
who, you know, are like, I don't have any kids, but I saw what you guys were doing and I think it's totally unfair because everything that you do for these children, so that that's what I think. Everyone's been a kid. Everybody's <laughs> been a kid, everybody's had a teacher. <laughs> In addition to her comments, any type of job, whether it is a something in career and technical education, or whether it be a doctor, or whether it be a nurse, a lawyer, any profession, you have to have an education. No matter what you do, you have to have an education. And to me, that is why that I think we have had the most support, is because if the education system fails, then everyone else is pretty well screwed, you know? We have to have education in order to survive and for our country to be able to thrive. No doubt about it. I think for higher education, um, especially in our country and the way that it's you know been commodified and pushed um, largely to benefit the uh, loaning industry, um, people see it as, as real promise, um, as like a, an opportunity to not just have the high school diploma, but to push on. And so that attracts a lot of people to it. Um, and it, it is very important for that reason. I think it's also the case that because it attracts a lot of people, it attracts a lot of money, and it therefore attracts a lot of opportunistic politicians uh, and the corporations that keep them, uh, you know, keep them flush. You know, our, our governor is also a wealthy man, just like the terrible Jim Justice uh, <laughs> shithead. Um, right, but he has a lot of rich friends who, who are attracted to and want to make some money off of this thing that has so much uh, appeal to it. They want to get a piece of it. They want to get a bit of the brand. Um, and that's why companies want to manage the facilities. That's why companies want to manage the food service. It's because they are trying to get a bite off of that magic apple um, that is actually contains the promise of a better future for the people who live and, you know, live and work there. You know, and I think that's just it. It's like the promise and the investment of a community in a, in a higher education institution in a high school and a middle school um, is also the thing that makes people want to grab it to start a charter school, to do whatever. And also reflective of what's going on in the White House right now, which Absolutely. is a textbook example, no pun intended, of what, you know, what this means. Mm -hmm. In Milwaukee, we continue to try to, to raise the conversation that the promise of Brown versus Board of Education has not been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the purposeful disinvestment in our public schools and the purposeful disinvestment in brown and black majority cities is by design, it's on purpose. And that is, that is state sanctioned violence. That's what violence is. So education you know, I was saying to Angela, I have 4,000 students in Milwaukee who are homeless. I had children walk into my classroom without socks. So all the teachers in Milwaukee public schools who had pay and benefits slashed by $10,000, 
you know, we have, I had a, a file cabinet that belonged to students. The contents of that file cabinet belonged to students. There were socks in that file cabinet. There's food in that file cabinet. There's lotion in that file cabinet. There's deodorant in that file cabinet. When families don't have jobs, when, when jobs run away from our cities, and, and my students and our students don't, have, don't know that they can depend on being food secure and housing secure, and their moms and dads are working two and three and four shitty jobs to try and put it all together. That public school is supposed to be a place where every kid matters. And Angela and I look at our students the way that she looks at her children and the way that I look at my nephews. If what's being offered is not good enough for what I would accept from my family, it is not good enough for anyone. And I think just to like piggyback off of what Amy's saying and tying it all in together with our fight and all of that. So I'm a new educator. I don't make very much money, but I still have that same drawer in my classroom. I'm buying snacks every week, underwear, socks, toothbrushes, toothpaste. I've given money to families because they were in need. So I'm going to fight. I'm going to get parents, community members. When they see me walking in with all the bags, the parents are like, Mrs. Harris, what is that for? Oh, this is for the classroom. Who bought all that stuff? Did, did the principal buy that? No, I did. Oh, that's great, Mrs. Harris. I appreciate you doing that. And then I'm like, well, let me talk to you about how much money I make. Let me talk to you about how many hours I spend in this building unpaid. Let's have a conversation about that. And I pull them in, and then they have conversations. I have 93% attendance in my classroom because I make connections with my parents, and they see that I love their children. My kids in my classroom call me mom because I treat them the same way I treat my own children. I'm dedicated to this profession. I just wish that our legislators and our government would be equally as dedicated to us. I would like to just touch base on what Josh said a minute ago about our governor, Mr. Jim Justice. <laughs> he is the wealthiest man in the state of West Virginia. He is a billionaire. He started off on the Democrat, on the Democratic ticket, and he came around pushing the, um, bringing the jobs back to West Virginia, paving the roads, putting educators first, so on and so forth. So we all bought it. We all fell for it. 
He got all of our endorsements. He gets in shortly after, switches over to the Republican ticket. He uh, begins helping the uh, corporations fill their pockets. He does everything in his power against the working class people. And it, it is beyond shameful, the things that this man has done. He actually owes back taxes to the state, which are in the upteen millions, I'm thinking somewhere between 14 and 16 million that he hasn't paid. We would be in jail if it was, um, let's say, upteen thousands. But here he is in the millions, and they're not even touching him. This is an example of what is going on across America in the Republican Party. Sorry to the Republicans in the audience if there are any, but that's just the way it is. Republicans support corporations. Democrats are for the middle and the working class families. So since we're talking about Jim Justice and strikes, um, we want to go back to the idea of the strike as a way and a place to both sort of build power and build attention, right? The country is now paying attention to teachers and their demands. Um, and this has been ongoing. We said earlier that we started belabored with Karen Lewis from the Chicago Teachers Union after the Chicago Teachers Strike. And so when we look at organizing outside of the National Labor Relations Board model, um, when we look at organizing outside of what your state law allows you to do, what role does the strike play and how does that allow you to build power and to um, make your demands heard? We basically just say, you know, we know it's the law, but we've got the majority. What are you going to do? We're 48th in the nation. You've got over 700 vacancies. People are not knocking the door down to come in here for this insurance that you're offering us. There is no possible way that you're going to be able to pull people in here to replace us. So to heck with the law. What are you going to do? We're out. Replace us if you can. Not happening. Again, it just speaks to that fear component, right? People are afraid to say the S word in Milwaukee because it's illegal. So we're currently actively in a campaign to fight for time, health, and arrays. Our budget passes on April 27th, Amy. The superintendent will reveal her entire budget on that day. So after April 27th and the budget is revealed and we've done all of these actions up until, up until then, what happens after if we don't get what we want? Where do we go next, right? This is a real conversation that I'm having with members in my building. I had a member actually tell me, well, I'm close to retirement, so I'm not going to strike. Well, if you don't, I'm not close to retirement. I have 20 plus years left. If you don't strike, you leave me out to dry. You leave me hanging. So we need to take what they did in West Virginia and, and what they're doing in Arizona and Kentucky and Tennessee, and we need to keep that momentum going. We need to keep 
the flames burning. We can't let it die because if we do, we'll never get the educational system our students deserve. One thing I would like to point out is we had a teacher who is near retirement. Her name is Pam Chapman, and she doesn't even have insurance. She is covered under her husband's UMWA pension, and that is 100% coverage. She actually stood with us on the insurance issue even before the raise itself was actually brought up. So she went around and she spoke to these older teachers. She was on our side 100%. If you can find someone who has that ability, who says, you know, I'm not being affected by this, but we have to help our younger teachers. Everyone needs a Pam Chapman, I can tell you that. <laughs> she stood with us even when the insurance did not affect her. We must do that, we must stick together, whether we're close to retirement, whether we've got a few years in, whether we're halfway there, everyone must stick together. There has to be a form of unity. If that does not happen, then you're not going to get anywhere. We could clearly see what happens when legislators and special interests think that they're gonna continue to break the backs of workers and starve our children. We've seen West Virginia, we're watching Oklahoma, Kentucky, Arizona, I saw an article yesterday, is Tennessee next? When the Wisconsin State Legislature passed a law to take over Milwaukee Public Schools, they passed a law that that had to happen. Our union and parents and students and coalition members said, some laws are unjust and some laws are worth breaking. And they passed a law and they didn't take over one of our schools, not one. So what I can tell you is that I remember being at the Capitol for 11 days. I wrecked a pair of boots because it snowed every day. It snowed every day and so we were marching and, and it was wet. And I wrecked a pair of boots marching and like the only place my car would drive was Madison and the Capitol. And uh, I wasn't a leader in my union then, and so I didn't know what was gonna happen, but I just kept looking around. And I was like, is this, is this gonna happen? Are we gonna take it down? And it didn't happen. There were people who told us to stand down and walk out of the Capitol. But I know this country can see that public school educators are sick and tired. And they're sick and tired of the garbage that their students have been given. And I think like the cat's out of the bag, people. 
I think the cat's out of the bag. I think in some ways, West Virginia, I'm wondering, like, I think West Virginia teachers thought, well, only our kids are the ones with the old textbooks and the broken chairs and no art and no recess. And then Oklahoma was like, no, our kids don't have that either. And Wisconsin and Milwaukee's like, no, our kids don't have that either. So the cat's out of the bag. And what they have been doing to our students across this nation is unconscionable. It's unconscionable. So, I mean, I just feel that this, I just feel that this nation is at a moment and people have had it. And they are saying that this is enough. One thing I would like to add as far as West Virginia, we have had various state assessment changes over the last couple years and they've went they've gone from uh, West test to smarter balance which was based around common core and within one to two years they are redoing this saying well this test doesn't work we're going to throw this out we're going to adopt new standards and the last count I had um, within the six years that I have been here, they, they are now on their third set of standards. And the last time they spent $66 million to change the assessment and to get it online. What's the purpose in that? Why can that not go towards our textbooks? Why can that not go towards our raises? Why do we have to keep focusing so much on standardized testing? It's ludicrous. I think just to speak to Amy's point, and I just want to get everybody in the room's feeling, raise your hand if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. I think all of us are. So I think that's where we're going. We no longer want to be sick and tired. So when the strikes, the strike wave started making the news, um, a lot of people got interested all of a sudden in what was going on in education. But I think what struck people also was that it upended a lot of their stereotypes because of where this is happening, right? Um, people are like, what? A mass uprising in the middle of Trump country? In the heart of all these... Big air quotes around Trump country. Trump country in the heart of all these these red states, right, and, and led by teachers, no less? I mean, what's, what's going on here? So, you know, we saw workers taking grassroots action in a way that challenged people's stereotypes, even though on the ground, given your political circumstances, it might have felt like the most common sense move in the world, and things might have just been falling into place. So we know that it didn't start with Trump, and it's not going to end with Trump, and it didn't just start with you know, these contract negotiations, and it's not going to end with this legislature either. And it didn't start with Scott Walker. And it didn't start, it didn't start with any single politician or law. Um, so there's actually a long history that people don't know about if they just read the headlines of teacher militancy, of um, mobilization even in these supposedly red states, right? So I'd like to go around and, you know, what would each of you like, you know, these coastal elites, um, these news organizations to understand about the history that led up to these moments that just punctuate a really long arc of organizing in your communities? So I think um, something that 
was really occurring to a lot of us in East Tennessee is that there is a long history uh, of outsourcing. Um, before they wanted to take facilities jobs, it was the textile plants. Um, and there was just a wave of closures from the 30s to the 70s. And so we had, you know, people use the term linhead as a derogatory term. Um, and I'm not going to try and take that back for them. But right, we had some former linheads in our, you know, in our local or people who remember that. And so they, there has been a, a simmering anger around just the loss of stable employment, especially in the surrounding counties to, to where I live in Knox County, Tennessee. Um, and I think that's part of it. It's, it's just that when people are long-term economically marginalized, you know, they don't forget that. And if they're not personally affected, they know someone who is. And so I, I think that combined with um, w what people don't remember about the labor movement is actually there's lots of militant things that happened in the South. Often, you know, not, um, not remembered by everyone, but certainly happened. And I think that's just something that people forget is that uh, whatever color your state is in some map um, that people remember your state exists, you know, in the months before a presidential election, there are actually people who are and have been fighting for a progressive agenda who are maybe don't even have those terms but are actually trying to build a better life for themselves and their family and they have been the whole time, you know, in between the four-year cycle. I actually reside right in the heart of Trump country. In West Virginia, we had 70% of the vote go toward President Trump. And in an interview with Fox News, I made the statement, we would like to call on our president to intervene somehow with the education system. Of course, it was never reported. But if you have that strong or that, that much support within a state, and as he, we've mentioned in these other states that are completely red, and he actually does care about education, why does he not try to do something on a federal level to help us? Why can we not get grants? Why can we not get raises? I know that a lot of this is basically state issues, but I feel that there could be more could be done at a federal level than what is being done to help us now. He can intervene to save coal miners and he can intervene to Absolutely. save teachers. If he can save the coal miners, he can save the teachers. Absolutely. Um, I will not sit here and tell you that I have any handle. I, I, I need to know much more about the militancy of labor in teaching in particular, so I will not sit here and say that I know that. But here's what I do know. Education is carried out in this nation by women, overwhelmingly. And what Act 10 did to women in my state and families in my state, and this is my West Virginia brother, I love you, but we cannot get away from the fact that women are the educators of this country, that for lots of reasons, for lots of reasons. But I do believe 
there are, I'm told that there are 160 women attorneys going to the Oklahoma State House tomorrow. And what they've told the legislature is that they want to help them get public schools fixed for children and educators and that they know they can help them and if they don't let them help them they're going to run against them and take their jobs so i'll just say that i believe i believe in public school educators i believe in women And I believe that is a huge part of why we are seeing the resistance because the responsibility that we feel never goes away. We never stop thinking about our kids. We never stop thinking about our students. It is not an eight to four job. We go to bed thinking about them, we wake up thinking about them, and we spend the summers worrying about them. So I do trust the women who teach our students in this country. And I just want to say, I wrote a book about social movements. This is really me not trying to plug my book, but to say that Wisconsin was the beginning of the fight back against austerity, against all of this stuff, with the fight against Act 10. That was where it started. Before that, the whole story was the Tea Party, the Tea Party, the Tea Party. And then all of a sudden, it was teachers and social service workers in Wisconsin, in the streets, and in the Capitol. So I am very happy to have Wisconsin and West Virginia, and also Tennessee. I love Tennessee. Um, so I want to end, before I'm going to open this up to the questions from the audience, I wanted to ask all of you, I was really struck by Angela saying, I'm coming for everything Scott Walker took. So all of you are in places where, again, things are all, labor law is already shot. It's already terrible. When rethinking it, when we're coming for what Scott Walker took, what do we want it to look like? What would we, how would we rewrite labor law in these places? Because all of you have learned that sometimes organizing outside of labor law is better in some ways. So what would it look like if we put all of you in charge? And I'm hoping that you all will be in charge very soon. Actually, um, we've already been discussing this, especially with our US congressman. He is, he is running for US Congress. He will win. He will win. Senator Ojeda, as I spoke of earlier, he has told us that once we take the House and the Senate back in November, that the right to work law will be abolished. Hmm. And the Democratic Party has made lots of promises, and they are going to have to stick to those. So far, they have been on our side the entire time. The Republicans claim that they're just doing this to win it back. So we will see next year when we win it back, if they do. And if they don't, then they're going to have us to answer to. And then abolition of charter schools, is that actually enshrined in legislation right now? The abolition of charter schools isn't actually in legislation, but we made sure that the bills were killed and we got the promise of the governor who says just trust me folks <laughs> it's gone so 
I am confident that as long as we get the Republicans out and the Democrats take control, that that will no longer be an issue. My main uh, reason for believing that it is coming all over the country is it is the agenda of Betsy DeVos. Mm -hmm. And I think that she's the one who's got all this going. If we can get a Democratic leadership back in West Virginia, I'm certain that although it may not be in legislative wall, that um, it, it will be as good as abolished. In this fight to come for everything that Skywalker took, one thing that um, I remember, I want to remember, and I think I, everybody needs to remember, and Ingrid Walker Henry, who is one of our union sisters, said yesterday, in this fight, we have no permanent enemies and we have no permanent friends. So just like you spoke about these things that they're saying that they're going to do, we don't know if they're actually gonna do it. But if you're voting with me and you're voting with my students and my families, I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. When it comes to what I think I would want the labor movement to look like, um, I really want the right to bargain back. I want that back on the table. I need to be able to sit down and say, look, I'm at work sometimes 10, 11, 12 hours a day, and then I go home and I still work. I need to be compensated appropriately. I need to be able to fight for my wages. I need to be able to fight. I need to be able to bargain for my wages, to bargain for my health care. We need that power back in our hands. So I want to say just I totally agree with all of that. I also think that um, when, when you think about labor law, you, you should actually think about democracy. Um, and one thing that our union has talked about and hopefully we'll continue to work to support it, is laws that actually allow for more people to really actively engage in governing. Because when the people are in charge of the government, that government is robustly funded, that government uh, has services that are accessible to all the people, and when they're not, they don't. And so I, I think that thinking, I would love to be able to bargain for my wages and my health and safety conditions and all that kind of stuff, and we will fight for that. But I also think that we have to think about it expanding democracy for the whole class, all the people. And when we can do that, that's when we will have won. Because I think that if we focus too narrowly on, on labor law, then we, we can forget that. I want collective bargaining back. But I don't want it back the way that it was. Yeah. I don't want it back the way that it was. Um, until Act 10, I felt very peripherally involved with my union. Uh, when I got my first paycheck at 22 years old, I made $24,000, which I thought was fantastic. I was so proud to, to earn that paycheck. But when I got my first paycheck, there was a deduction there for union dues. And I, I was like, I didn't, I did not authorize this deduction. What what is what is this what is this deduction? What's for the union? Hmm. What is the union? So I don't want it back the way that it was because, and I I can only just speak from my experience in Milwaukee. Um, I want to be able to enforce a contract, but. 
we're responsible for so much more than that. We're responsible for schools that are real places for emancipation and liberation for our students. We're responsible for schools that are, that are freedom schools. We're responsible for schools that are explicitly anti-racist. And I don't know if my union ever bargained for something like that. And the best thing that happens to me on any given day is when a Milwaukee public school parent or a student reaches out to me and says, we're not being listened to. This administrator isn't paying attention to us. This school board member isn't calling me back and listening to me. Board governance is ignoring me. And I got a problem, it's a serious problem. I mean, the union should be, our union should be for everyone. I want Milwaukee public school parents to, to know that the MTEA is their union too. I want students in Milwaukee public schools to know that that is your union too. And that we do that together. All right. Um, so we want to take some audience questions. Hi, I got a question for the Milwaukee teachers. Um, I sat in on a panel with your director of social media, Joe, and I heard about the struggle up there. Um, in Iowa, I know we do, they do, have, they have to recertify as well every year with the unions. I, were you guys able to get involved with the, uh, with the fight for trying to do the texting and the, and getting people to, getting members to vote, or did you leave that up to other members? Oh, it was a total team effort. Like, all, all hands on deck. Seriously, Amy texted me. She was like, Angela, you're the BR at your building. I need you to get 100% recertification. And I was like, huh? <laughs> um, I'm new, first year educator and first year BR. Uh, a lot on my plate. And I was like, I have no idea how I'm gonna do this. But we had a plan in place. We used this app called Hustle, where you just shoot out hundreds of messages and then you get responses back. But even beyond that, once I started sending out the Hustle, hey, did you call? Did you vote to recertify? Here's the number. Make sure you text me back once it's done then I can check you off the list. So it was not only about reaching out to all those people, but making sure that we followed up with them as well. Um, and there was a huge push from Joe on the social media side, Facebook, Twitter. There were messages posted in our member group, um, messages posted so that we could share them. We uh, had flyers that we put in everybody's mailboxes. It literally was a, coordina a coordinated effort amongst all of us. Angela's right. Follow through is everything. So let me just say that uh, putting a flyer in somebody's mailbox and telling them to vote for research, no. Sending an email, no. So in all of the ways that Angela just talked about, um, it's also walking up to everybody in your building with your team. So if we're a team, we're taking it floor by floor, department by department, shift by shift, however it's gotta get done, and I'm responsible for looking in the eyes 
of my 15 people and making sure that they voted. And if they didn't, I got my phone in my hand. Do it right now. My best friend got mad at me this last time. She contacted me. She's like, hey, can we? I think she wanted to see a movie or something. And I'm like, hey, you haven't turned in your votes to me. She didn't talk to me for a couple of days. That's okay. We have to win the recertification. And I'm going to be honest with you. The first couple of years that we did it, it made me so mad. It made me so boiling mad that we had to do it. But then it was like, no, this is an organizing opportunity because it's not just making a phone call. We're doing this for our students and for our union. Hello, uh, Rashard Jackson from Amalgamated Transit Union. Uh, we represent the transit workers in Grand Rapids and, uh, and mechanics. And we understand all too well the need to fight for what you want and deserve. Um, earlier, um, when you started, and I don't recall who actually made the statement, you talked about there comes a time in bargaining where uh, when you've done everything by the book to try to deliver your message to the people that can affect that change, and they basi it basically falls on deaf ears, and you have to escalate. And within your uh, coalitions and your um, uh, uh, labor councils, there may be a little bit of discord. What I want to know is kind of a two-part question. Um, do you think it's important to go and repair those rifts uh, within that when they all don't agree? And if so, how do you do that knowing that there is a high probability that you're going to have to go right back and do this thing again when it comes time to start renegotiating. It wasn't that hard. I was very nervous, though, when it was happening because I, I was worried about whether or not it would get repaired. People are ready to do what they're ready to do. And I... I have a different kind of a responsibility to push a union sister than I do a coalition partner. That's just like a, a decision that I've made for myself. People are ready to do what they're ready to do. But 90% of us were ready. And so we can't, I'm not gonna judge the 10% who aren't or weren't, um, but they're still at the table and they still matter. We will, and we will take on something again that will be difficult. It will happen again and it will be difficult. And we will have to face that and we will, I can't tell you how important it is to just start off inoculating yourselves and knowing that it's gonna be bumpy sometimes. And that doesn't mean it's bad, but it's gonna be bumpy sometimes. But I can say that there, there was no um, rift that remained and that those folks are still at our table. Hello, uh, my name is Raymond Gong. I'm here uh, representing the University of Illinois at Chicago Graduate Employees Organization. Um, I have a, a quick comment and then a question. Uh, the first comment is to the comrade from West Virginia. Please don't uh, stop being vigilant about pushing against the charter school expansions because Chicago has been under democratic control for a very long time and we've already seen 50 you know, historic school closures and charter prol proliferation even under democratic leadership, so please stay vigilant. Um, uh, my question is, uh, it's for the entire panel, but specifically for the comrades from Milwaukee. Um, based on the success of your reauthorization vote, um, could you provide some concrete examples of, one, recruiting the right people into positions of power and leadership, 
and two, cultivating a culture where members feel empowered and responsible for enacting the ideas for change that they want to have in their workplace. Thank you. Hi, Raj Kutters, Railroad Workers United. Uh, I'm curious, with healthcare being a central issue that West Virginia teachers were organizing and fighting for, um, after the establishment of the PEIA task force, uh, what were thoughts that teachers were having around that, uh, that outcome, and what does that mean for future organizing? They actually, um, they were outraged because the premiums were going up. They were proposing that our out-of-pocket deductible be increased from the current 80-20 to 60-40. And they were wanting to include a total family income to base the, um, the insurance premium on that, which meant as of now, and the way it has been as long as we've had PEIA, they had um, based it primarily on the person who, the insuree, the, the main insuree. Well, they wanted to make them include their spouse's income, and if you had a teenager who was working uh, 16 or 17 years old, they wanted you to count that in, um, which would have been seven, eight hundred dollars for some, maybe more for others, that they were want you would basically be working for insurance only. So that is what really got them fired up and that's what got the ball rolling. There were just so many things. Did that completely answer your question or was there a second part? Well I guess I'm just curious with the outcome being the establishment of a task force around that. Mm -hmm. uh, how do the teachers in West Virginia feel about that, do you think, and, and what does that mean carrying the struggle forward? Okay. Um, the teachers themselves are not comfortable. They do not trust the governor. They do not trust the task force. But I will say this. There have been three task forces that have been created in the state of West Virginia concerning education in the past 28 years. The first one was to deal with the pensions of the retirees. That was established in 1990. That one has been successful. Another established the EPA, which is an organization that comes in and repairs our schools. They um, build new ones. They give us faculty senate money, which is approximately $250, give or take, depending on where you live. And they were able to do that as well. And we get that every year as a result of a task force. The third task force was under um, Governor Joe Manchin, which is more recent. It was actually on merit-based pay. They were trying to give us base our wages on our test scores and our evaluations. And that third task force, which was created in 2008, I think, was successful in keeping the merit-based pay out of West Virginia. Based on the past experiences, the three times a task force has been implemented, all three have been successful. So that is what I'm telling my people. Am I going to say that they're going to be successful here? No, we don't know. They don't trust them. But Based on past experiences, they have always been successful, and that is what I am trying to be optimistic about. 
I wanted to answer the question about our recertification um, and concrete examples of getting people involved and in roles of leadership. Um, I didn't consider myself to be a leader in our union. Um, I definitely, um, I told a story yesterday about uh, being in the new teacher orientation and some people with some green shirts coming in and we want to talk to you about our union. And I called my husband and asked him if I should sign up. And he said, yes. Um, I started my career in Milwaukee Public Schools as an educational assistant. Um, my role actually was called a paraprofessional. I was in a department in our central office that nobody knew about. They hid us in the basement so that they could do whatever they wanted to us, essentially. And I remember walking across the street to our union. And I said, I have this issue in my department. I need help with it. You know, I'm paying these dues. What can you guys do for me? And they were like, oh, we can help you. But first, we need you to sign up some people. You're the only member in your department. So I brought back um, 18 memberships. So I signed up every member in my department. And Amy told a story yesterday that I didn't know about. She had said, when I did that, she was like, I need to know who this girl is. <laughs> and ever since then, Amy texts me like, Angela, I need you to X, Y, Z. And I'm like, but I've never done this before. I need you, the first thing she asked me to do is speak at a school board meeting. I'm deathly afraid, I don't know if you guys can tell that, but I'm, de <laughs> I'm, I'm deathly afraid of speaking in front of people. My hands are shaking, my voice is shaking. Amy says to me, Angela, I'm nervous when I get up there too, but I need you to tell your story. And she does such a great job of empowering people and making you feel powerful. Like, I knew, I kind of knew I had power, but Amy just reinforced it and she provides me with these opportunities to speak out for my children. And that's really what it's all about, right? Like, and one of the things, in terms of leadership, because leadership looks different for everybody. So you may not be the person who likes to sit in front of a room full of people and talk or stand up at a podium, but you can be the leader in your building, pushing your teachers to do things. You can be a leader in our union, helping us organize and get new memberships. That's a, a, another opportunity for leadership. And I think Amy can probably speak a little bit better on how she uh, gets, cultivates our leadership opportunities. <laughs> You know, I think it's pretty, um, I'm always vigilantly looking to see who, who really does the work. So we run, we have this question about the recertification vote in 137 schools. And we, we run that, we track that every single day with our team. And in some buildings, we have some buildings that don't have elected leaders. So we gotta carry those buildings. And a, a union doesn't grow stronger that way. Does it, that doesn't happen that way. So before Act 10, our union was involved in a practice where if, if individuals in a building didn't want to conduct an election to elect leaders, they didn't have to. And someone could sign up to be a distribution contact. A distribution contact is someone who puts flyers in mailboxes. We're not doing that anymore. There has to be an elected building team in every single building. And we are whittling that number down every single year. Uh, I, I don't have, we're not at the place that we need to be, but we are so close. 
And so when someone said to me, there is a woman who just signed up her department, I was like, really? <laughs> How big is her department? 18 people. Oh, what is her name? <laughs> what is her name? And so I, we all watch for who really does the work. And so when we do the recertification vote and we come back every single day and every single week and look at where it's getting done and look where it's not getting done, new people show up all the time. And I'm like, who is that? <laughs> who is that? That really just noticed that the person, the person who's elected isn't moving it, but they were like, this gotta get, I gotta move this, let's go. So um, I think constantly broadening and expanding what leadership is, leadership isn't the president and the vice president. That's not a union. That's a great way to just tamp a union down and leadership, it has to be growing all the time. And so really, you know, 26th year of teaching, first year of teaching, Angela now has her eyes on for who are the new leaders who are really doing the work. And it's si se puede people, it's not hard. There's no se puede people and there's si se puede people. And we, you got to find the people who are like, yes, we can, because we have to. Hi, I'm Rebecca with Eastern Michigan University Federation of Teachers. Um, Michigan, right to work state as well. <laughs> My question is, um, in terms of building a coalition and reaching out to the community, because it seems evident that the future of labor is a broader movement, it can't be like the good old boys club anymore. Um, what are some tangible and really concrete ways to do that that you've seen to be effective? Um, that's kind of our long-term goal as a union to really be able to do that. And I'd love to hear some successful stories of things that you did that worked. Great, so I think the, the first thing that comes to mind, I, I got my start um, as an activist. Uh, I don't think about it as a career, but like I got called to the movement uh, by an organization called USAS, United Students Against Sweatshops. A lot of universities have a student group like that. Students are people who are the, your direct contact, who are rec receiving the public good that you're giving, right? Um, your labor is giving them an education. Your labor is uh, cleaning the floors like I did for a long time that allows them to have a classroom that is clean that they can learn in. So I think that's the first thing is identifying people who receive the thing that you're, you're giving and knowing that you and them are not separate, like that you don't have to have this consumer relationship with them like where you, you sell and they buy. Um, I think also uh, we've had a lot of success with faith groups, um, with the campus faith groups and their connections to the larger faith community. Um, I'm also co-chair of a group called Jobs of Justice um, and having our union show up for their unions, show up for the other things, like outside of your, your purview, like uh, our Jobs of Justice Coalition supported um, this, an, a student organization, a high school student organization called Voices of Trans Youth that was working um, to combat some really ugly policies where um, that basically made trans youth vulnerable in the school system. And so like, if you have a track record of showing up 
and you and not just for your one or two buddies um, buddy organizations but for everyone people will sh then show back up and so I, I think formal coalitions like jobs of justice and uh, reaching out to you know groups like USAS if there is a USAS chapter at uh, EMU like that they are not only receiving um, the gift of an education from you and your colleagues but also they are part of a national organization that can bomb the phone lines if you need, not, not literally, not literally, um, <laughs> call in. Um, there, I mean, there might be some, some people with some specialized skills, but you know, like, I think... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, so national coalitions like Jobs of Justice and uh, USAS are two things that I would say really concretely. And there are lots of other organizations, Interfaith Worker Justice, very similar, they might have a chapter close to you. Hi, my name is Dennis Dunn. I'm a communication worker of America from New York. First of all, I just want to thank you for you know what, what you do in West Virginia. It was inspirational. Uh, I kind of have like an observation and a question based on that because we were on strike a couple of years ago for seven weeks, uh, and social media was um, really the catalyst for getting information out to the public and coalition members and getting that support um, publicly in the community. I'm wondering if you felt it was the same way there. There's kind of like a timeline of this growing swell because if I watch the local news or, or any news channel, they just show a blip on uh, you know West uh, West Virginia teachers being out without any you know meat and potatoes behind what you're really wa uh, walking for. But through social media, I can see that, and it's like rank and file members and teachers like yourself that are getting that message out. Um, did you have a social media plan, and how do you feel like social media helped with your support and your fight? We actually we had Jay O'Neill who is attending the conference here as well. He created a page called West Virginia Public Employees, and that included everyone who was under the PEIA insurance. And we got I think social workers involved, state police, um, county workers, um, those from the Department of Transportation as well as teachers. And we shared that with everyone, and we had all on board, all on the page, everyone understanding what was going on. And to me, that was one of the biggest things that allowed us to successfully get our message across, allow people to know what was going on, when it was happening, what they were trying to do to us. And we had people from other branches of the of professions to come and go along with us on that. So that definitely social media was the number one way of getting it out. Were there any, just, um, I know that there probably were at least a few politicians who were allied with your cause. Did they tap into their networks in terms of social media and reaching out to their constituencies? The ones in favor, is that what yeah, you're and, asking? And, yeah. Absolutely, as I said, we have two House of Delegates, which were Justin Markham, and um, Mark Dean, both were phenomenal and on our side. Now, part of our county has uh, Senator Ojeda, whom I've mentioned several times. He was on board. Now, the area where I live was and is currently represented by Mr. Mark Maynard, who is our senator. He was anti-teacher, anti-union, you name it, complete sleazeball, okay? He, um, 
He told me that teachers only represented a small amount of his constituents. And I, in turn, said, well, we have families and we have friends and we do have a lot of influence. And I tried to ask him, you know, why will you not propose or support any type of bill that will allow our gas severance tax to be increased by 1% to 2% because that was all it was going to take in order to fully fund our insurance. Well, the thing is, we, got, we get online and we start checking all their contributions and all those who were voting against it had 10, 20, $15,000 contributions made to their campaigns by the corporations, by the gas corporations, by the oil corporations. And um, they could have very easily, very easily have just put that up 1%. According to our Senator Ojeda, we are, in, we are actually sitting on the next Saudi Arabia. That is the way he has compared our natural resources that are beneath our feet. And they're not doing anything about it. They are allowing them to come in just as they did with the coal industry, bankrupt our towns. The billionaires are taking the money out. They're leaving. They're not giving us anything in return. We right now have ghost towns across the state of West Virginia. So to answer your question completely, um, we have to have the support of our legislatures. If we don't, then the people aren't going to go with you. Now, back to Mark Maynard, which is the one in my district. Um, in that conversation that I had, and I tried to explain to him that we needed this, that they had already pulled coal from our state, and now if they do the same thing with oil without raising the tax, then we were going to be in the same boat in a few years, only it was going to be worse in our towns. And his response after he told me that we only represented a minority of his constituents, he says, I'm going to do what's right. And he said, I'm not here to be reelected anyway. I said, well, it's a good thing you're not. <laughs> and he turns around very quickly and he says, thank you for your enthusiasm, darts off into another room. Hi, I'm Elizabeth White from the National Union of Healthcare Workers in California. I want to thank the panel for your inspiration. I want to thank Michelle Chen, who covered our uh, Kaiser Permanente strike. Um, so one of the things that I haven't heard a lot at this conference that I thought was so powerful and helped me become more of a labor activist is during the Occupy movement, the 99% and 1%. So often, um, when you are a professional worker, um, you're divided from other workers, but the 99 and the one really cut across and unified, I think, began in our work to be able to have our mental health professionals, people with master's degree and license, really embrace the full spectrum of workers. So I just wanna ask the panel, especially Milwaukee, because I remember your Fight Fit 15, you guys were one of the first ones to go with that, but how can 99% and 1% bring back um, more a unified approach um, to our activist work? Thank you. 
I'm thinking about your question. It's very good. I can, I can remember that when I was uh, finishing up my dissertation for my PhD that I was interviewing Dr. Antonia Dardere, and she, and I was studying the, the social construction of whiteness in a classroom and what it means for a teacher like me to teach students who are not like me. And what does that mean? And in our discussion for the very first time, uh, Professor Dardere brought to me this concept of professional and worker. And I had not thought about that before. I had declared myself as a professional. And, and I am, I'm a professional worker. But this, this concept is, I think is very important uh, because I think the lie and the trick of the 1% is that you know we're supposed to be like them, we're supposed to strive, we're supposed to keep. I don't think that sounds very good. I think that when I started seeing myself as a worker and when I started thinking deeply about what it meant for me to be in true solidarity with my students and with my students' families, um, that that was, that was when the possibilities for my teaching and my students learning really unleashed. But I, th you know, this premise of um, all of us or none of us, like that's how I think of 99 and 1%. Um, this concept of profiting off of education and, uh, and uh, these people who see dollar signs over our students' heads, I think that is extremely important for the public education message, that the 99% is taking it back, that we're demanding rich, resourced, properly attended to public spheres, and that that is our right. Um, and so I, I do appreciate the push on that, on that idea. So I think that um, as a rhetorical strategy, the 1% and the 99% is good. And we certainly use that in our campaign. But I just wanna really echo what Amy was saying. The we are the 99% has to be built. Uh, through action, um, through real solidarity, because it, you know at this point in our country, um, I, I actually I, I do believe there is a whole working class um, that is in a similar boat, right? The 99%, but there are divisions around gender and race and lots of other things, and so I, I think that to to make that 99% have weight beyond rhetoric. Uh, it means that a, a union has to have the, the social justice bent that Amy was talking about, that Angel's talking about, and that Brandon's been talking about. And if they don't have that, then it's just rhetoric, and I think that will attract some people, but that won't lead to long-lasting social change. I agree with that statement. We have to have some real conversations when we're talking about the 99% because there are, we may be the 99%, but there are some people in the 99% that are just as bad as the people in the 1%. So we need to start having some real conversations when we talk about building this movement and being so social justice minded. Um, anyone else have any final words about moving forward under the Trump era? Words of advice? Don't be afraid to fight. Mm. Do not be afraid 
to fight. If they don't give us what we want, we shut it down, period. I agree with that statement as well. Everyone needs to keep the fire burning. We cannot sit back and allow this to happen again. We have to keep our people informed. We have to be at these meetings. We have to be at the Capitol. We have to have presence in places where we let them know we are watching them. And when they turn their heads, they see us standing there and they know that they're not going to be able to run over us any longer. If we don't do that, if we don't stick together, if we don't stay informed, then we're going to end up right back where we were. And I have no intentions on allowing my county or my state to get in that position ever again. The only thing running through my head right now is power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. Your words never spoken. Um, I'd, I'd like to thank all of our fantastic panelists and I hope that we form some connections in this room that will last beyond this conference, hopefully. Um, and we had a great room full of people and full of questions and, and a yearning, a burning uh, for answers. So uh, thank you for inspiring that um, and good luck and let's all be in touch. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.